Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the post-pandemic economy. So, Richard, we are clearly rounding a corner right now on the COVID recovery. You had a, a big symbolic gesture in that direction yesterday with the CDC saying that masks are essentially unnecessary for vaccinated people at this point. And the government here kind of a lagging indicator in many ways where the public is. But one area where the public does not seem to be returning to normal quite yet is in the labor markets. We just recently had the release of the April jobs report, where the expectation was that the economy was going to be firing on all cylinders again. Projection was that we'd add about a million jobs for the month. It ended up only being about a quarter of that, around 266,000. And there's been a big debate about why that's happened. What, what's your diagnosis of the situation? Well, I mean, this is a, a chronic issue, but the uh, Biden administration has pushed very strong to increase the level of unemployment benefits and has added another $300 per week uh, to that particular total, which, if you take it over an entire year, is a, a very substantial sum, $15,000 or so. And it turns out that for many people, the unemployment benefits, um, which may not be untaxed, um, will in fact exceed the amount of money that they could earn if they go back to their job. So there is the moral hazard problem, which keeps people from going back into labor markets. Now, why do I think that's the likely explanation? It's because if you look on the job wanted sign, it turns out that employers are anticipating the market growing up and they really want to fill large numbers of positions. And contrary to earlier type situation, there's a huge demand for people who would be called a sort of a low wage earners, not terrible wage earners, but low relative to professional people. Companies like Amazon are wanting to hire, you know, 500,000 workers or whatever. And it turns out most of them are at the below professional level. So if you have that unsatisfied demand, it means that there's something that is luring people away. And that's something else is the amount of money that you can make by staying home. Uh, the president basically said there's no indication that that's the case. And his usual temptation, instead of to get rid of a distortion in the market, is to add another distortion into the market. And so now we're going to probably have to pay people $300 if they do go back to work and $300 if they do stay home, which means that it's just a straight income um, transfer. Um, I regard this as a sign of, of real potential difficulty. And as I see things going forward, the question is whether or not the natural recovery of an economy under more ideal conditions is going to be sapped by government programs which are going to push in the opposite direction. And that leads to an undegree, unnecessary degree of uncertainty in the way the markets are organized. Uh, but I think it's going to be quite volatile for the next couple of weeks, just as it has been for this past week. Let me give you the words of someone who is not at all troubled by the idea that workers might be unwilling to come off the sidelines unless they get paid more than they're getting from unemployment. This is your good friend Paul Krugman writing recently in the New York Times, and I quote, Employers in a depressed economy get used to being able to fill vacancies easily. When the economy improves, hiring gets a bit harder. Sometimes you have to attract workers by offering higher wages, and employers experience that as a labor shortage, but that's how the economy is supposed to work. Employers competing for workers by raising wages isn't a problem. It's what we want to see. 
What's your reaction to that? Well, what happens is uh, he doesn't look at the elephant in the closet. He's exactly right that we want to see employers bid up jobs. And indeed, uh, when Trump was president before 2020, uh, that went on at a much more furious rate than it had under the Obama situation. Uh, But you don't want to have them to bid up jobs against somebody who's going to give them free money. Uh, So what happens is the argument that he makes is the way in which we'd like things to go between two employers who are competitors with one another, but it has nothing to do with the question as to whether or not both of these potential competitors will be hampered by what the government does. Uh, So what he does is he makes a true observation, but he ignores the decisive observation on the opposite side, which indicates that this is going to hurt. And in fact, you know, this is not even very good economics or even good political theory. It's essentially what he's become in many cases, which is a kind of a propaganda artist first, um, rather than somebody who's serious about his work. Uh, He is so pro-Biden and so anti-Republican on these things that he has these Pollyannish lenses no matter what the situation on the ground is. And so I think what we should do is completely disregard that statement as being a sort of an unwarranted boost of intellectual amateurism on his part. Richard, as you noted on a recent show, you have not been a big inflation hawk during the years that we've been doing this show. You did say, though, the last time we discussed this, that you you become a little more vigilant on that front lately. Since that conversation... We got news that in April, the the year-over-year increase in the consumer price index was 4.2%. Hasn't been that high since 2008. A lot of inflation hawks saying, this is it. Our our chickens are coming home to roost. Many of the more dovish figures, and here you can include people like the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, have taken the position that, look, the economy is turning back on, and of course it's way higher than it was last year. At this time last year, we'd essentially shifted the economy to neutral. So the argument is more along the lines of, look, we're just we're just kind of moving the pig through the python, but we're going to get through this, and there's no real long-term threat that you've got to worry about. Uh, to what extent does that align with your own thinking? Um, I think it's a wrong diagnosis. Um, as you know, I am not somebody who pleads inflation at the uh, first drop of a hat. One point I would want to mention, however, is that the inflation calculations are always difficult because it's not only the question of how much money you have in the market. It's a question of the velocity, how rapid the particular transactions take place. So if you have a slow economy and you kind of feed it with lots of money, you're not likely to see any kind of inflation. Uh, But the Biden administration has really turned on the pumps, and now it turns out the velocity of money is going up, and so you're going to start to see some kind of inflation. I don't think that they're correct in saying that this is a short-term adjustment. And the reason is that uh, the labor markets will certainly respond to this, but you've got all these other imperfections that prevent this from being equilibrated. And so if you wanted to get rid of the inflation, it seems to me, you want to get rid of the kinds of subsidies which inject useless dollars into the economy and then have people bid in exactly the way in which I put it before. Uh, So what I see in effect is that uh, what's going to happen is they are going to continue with the pushing in there, claiming it's only a transitional problem. And so it may well be that we'll continue to get it. What makes this so difficult to predict is that we know what the White House is going to do. We know what Miss Yellen's going to do, and I think they're both mistaken. But some of this is at least going to turn on what the Fed does, where some of it's going to turn on what the Congress decides to do with the passing these appropriation bills and so forth. So um, there are other levers that have to be pushed, and we don't know the ways in which these things are combined one with another. Uh, but let me put it this way. Um, Think of this in terms of alerts. Uh, For a very long time, I was a yellow man on this, not much going on. 
Uh, I think now I'm in orange. It is certainly not the case that you can do this all the time and get away with it. The, the Krugman apologia, which appeared this morning in the New York Times, was, I thought, magnificently unpersuasive. The guy is obviously nervous, and he's trying to say, well, this is all going to pass over there. There, uh, There's no theoretical explanation why that ought to be the case. And indeed, one of the things, of course, that I'm worried about, which will create a further loss in the economy, if we keep putting the government out there, uh, you're still going to have situations where banks will park their money in treasury bills, which is going to do no productive good, and that the government is going to spend on what they call infrastructure projects, which are not going to do any good either. What I'm worried about is the domination of government in this market in every way, shape, and form could in fact prevent it, make it more difficult for private firms to get the capital that they need to expand in various kinds of market. And if it turns out you get more money and lower productivity and high velocity of money at the same time, then of course the inflation issue is going to be one that you have to worry about. So let me ask you about this story that's dominated a lot of the economic news this last week. Uh, that's the cyber attack, cyber attack on Colonial uh, Pipeline, jeopardizing fuel supplies in the Southeast. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners will remember this, but Colonial Pipeline was in the news before about five years ago because they had a significant leak and ultimately an explosion uh, that affected the same region. And Richard, beyond the security issues with cyber, for instance, what both of those incidents point to is that a lot of the country's pipeline infrastructure is aging. This is infrastructure that's pretty important to the country functioning every day like we expect it to function. But the Biden administration has generally been pretty hostile to any expansion, as was the Obama administration. What should we be taking away as policy implications of what we've seen this last week with the Colonial Pipeline? The first thing I think is going to go to the security issues. Pipelines are extremely difficult to secure because they're long and thin. So it's not as though you could put a stockade around them, which means that you have to be able to monitor them by various kinds of computer devices, which are very, very good. And in order to do that, you have to be able to upgrade the pipelines. The older pipelines on this are quite poor. Even a 4G-made pipeline is not going to be as good as a 5G pipeline. So for security purposes, you want to really increase it. The other thing, of course, is that we have is we're talking about a boom and trying to figure out what short-term locations are going to be. It is silly in the extreme to think that you can solve these problems by an expansion of solar energy on the one hand or wind energy on the other. Even if you could develop these technologies, which you cannot, it would take at least a half a dozen or a dozen years to get them in place. And there was a recent piece by Mark Mills, I think, of the Manhattan Institute, uh, who basically laid it out that it turns out that the ability to expand the supply um, is tied to its slowest link, namely the fact that the rare earths that are necessary to make many of these devices work are in short supply, and many of those short supplies are found in Congress, so that you couldn't even expand this technology if you wanted to do so. So for the short-term stuff having to do with the current boom, uh, you need to have a greater reliance on fossil fuels, which means that you have to have these pipelines approved uh, because the network at this point will be too close to capacity so that it won't have any resilience in the event of some kind of a downfall. Uh, so the decision of the Biden administration, which I thought was both dangerous and thoughtless, uh, to shut down the Keystone XL pipeline, uh, not to allow it to complete, is but one illustration. Right now, the DAPL pipeline which I was very concerned with and I wrote about many years, is still under review because there is what I regard as a totally preposterous claim uh, that this pipeline may spring a leak, which may go a quarter of a mile, which may 
into some Indian reservoir from the Suex tribe, um, which I regard when you put it together as a one in a billion proposition, is now being said, well, maybe we have to shut this down for another environmental impact statement in which it turns out the remote and the improbable uh, dominate the inquiry. These things are doubly dangerous because if you shut down the pipelines, as happened with the colonial pipeline, it's back to using trains, it's back to using trucks and so forth. And what happens is whenever you take a dangerous flu, uh, fluid or substance and you put it in a mixed environment, there's no way that you can protect it uh, because there are all sorts of other things that goes on roads. The only thing that goes through a pipeline is the natural gas, crude oil, whatever it is that they're having to be shipped. And so you could watch it much more. So we need to very quickly update this stuff. And instead, what do you see? You see the Biden administration trying to figure out a way to improve permitting with respect to solar and wind energy uh, and trying to slow down the gears on the other. Uh, I regard this as a colossal miscalculation. Um, I mean, for a man who always says that he's interested in the science, there's not the slightest bit of awareness that all the science that I'm aware of points in exactly the opposite direction. You can do an enormous amount by improving fracking, by improving shipment, by doing all sorts of improvements with existing fluids. Uh, Trying to start from scratch with solar and wind energy is going to turn out to be a dead loser. Uh, And if we start having these rolling blackouts like we have them in California, I think it's very dangerous. It's also, I think, important to understand that the climate stuff makes this more dangerous as well. Uh, One of the constant tropes that you hear is, All the climate change in California led to the fires of 2018. Uh, 2018 was at the end of a drop in in solar temperature and global temperature by about a degree from the previous two years. Uh, So the short-term stuff was low. It had nothing to do with temperatures at that time. It had to do with serious mismanagement of public lands on which all of these fires started to take place. There was no global crisis on the lands that were run and managed by uh, Georgia Pacific. So uh, what's happening here is is the Biden administration, which is bad on labor markets, bad on inflation, is now bad on energy as well. And, and the real question is how well can a booming economy survive if every single policy lever handled by government is being pulled in the wrong direction? I don't know the answer to that question, but I fear the results will be not what we want. Well, to that point, here's maybe a way of thinking about that question, Richard. This will be my, my final prompt for you. I think we can say with something approaching certainty that there are not going to be a lot of economic policies coming out of this administration that you're going to be a big fan of. So I'm going to phrase this question in the negative. Of the ideas they're entertaining, what is the idea or proposal that you think it's most important that the Biden administration not be able to implement? Well, I think there are about four big ones. I mean, I'm just going to mention the one that we haven't talked about already, which is the taxation policy that that's appropriate with this, trying to raise the rates with respect to corporate and individual taxes. Uh, uh, I think the basic vice that we have here is that there's always a fine equilibrium as to what should be a public expenditure and what should be a private expenditure. And I think what's happened is the essential facilities that need to be run by government have been well satisfied. All the additions now are essentially taking resources which we put to better use in private hands and trying to move them into public hands, either through direct ownership, through taxation, or through regulation. And it's the policy which says that the more we regulate, the more we tax, the more we control, the better that we will be. We'll lead to mistake after mistake and area after area. Um, I really think that this administration is careening towards disaster on the economic fronts. I will leave for another day are the mistakes that I think they're making in foreign policy. 
You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at definingideas at hoover.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.